0: everyone. Welcome to Talking Research. I'm Asmita and this is a podcast that features in-depth interviews with prominent academics and researchers who study sexual violence across its different manifestations. This conversation features an in-depth discussion of sexual violence both in specific cases and more generally.
1: In this conversation, I'm talking to Dr. Chloe Kennedy, who is a senior lecturer in criminal law at the University of Edinburgh. Her main research interests are criminal law, legal theory, legal history, and the relationships between these areas. And her research also focuses on law and gender and law and religion. In this episode, we're talking about Chloe's new paper on deceptive sex what it is, what forms it takes, and its criminalization. So it's a really interesting conversation and if you have any feedback on this episode or the podcast in general, please do write to us. Our social media handles and our email contact details are all in the podcast description. There is also a link to organizations that support survivors of sexual violence, gendered violence. That's also in the podcast description. In this chat, a thing that came up was statutes and... I don't have a legal background. So I had to understand what that means. So statute very simply is a law that is enacted by legislature. So just wanted to say that before we begin. But that's everything from me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. And yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Let's dive in.
0: Hi, Chloe. Welcome to Talking Research. How are you doing today? Hi, Asmita. Thank you for having me. I'm doing I'm doing well. Thanks. How are you? I'm good too. And um uh it's it's really exciting talking to you. And you know, we're talking about this fascinating new project that you're you're working on. And yeah, I'm really, really excited to have that conversation. But before I ask you about that, I kind of want you to introduce yourself. our guests and I'd like
2: you to introduce yourself in a way that you'd like to be introduced. Absolutely, Um, well thanks again for for having me. I'm I'm Chloe Kennedy, I work at Edinburgh Law School where I'm a senior lecturer in criminal law. Um, I teach teach a combination of subjects but mainly criminal law and criminal law theory but my research is a little bit wider than that. I also work on um, legal theory and legal history and law and gender. Um, I've also been doing recently and in the past a bit of interdisciplinary work um, thinking about how combining law with other sort of humanity subjects can help us think a bit differently about law and its you know its impact in the world.
0: Wow I mean a lot of what you said resonates with you know when you sent me your article and I felt like it was written you know it was definitely it was written in legalese if that makes sense but it was very uh <laughs> practical, you know, something that even those of us who don't study law or who are not uh, vocational lawyers could understand. Um, I don't know if I'm using the word legalese correctly.
2: (laughs) Well, it sounds right to me. I mean, I think um, it's tricky when, you know, you're working on a topic which obviously is the subject of lots of, uh, you know, legal decisions and, and there's lots of people writing about it. You have to kind of engage with the debate as it's going on, which requires a degree of sort of terminology usage and so on. But I, what I'm so happy about with Peering on this podcast is that hopefully this will give me a, a, another place to try and explain some of the issues and, you know, why I think they're important to a bit of a different audience um perhaps making it a bit more digestible and less legalese. But we'll see how we go. Maybe this will be as legalese. Let's just see how it goes.
0: Yeah, perfect. So t- tell us about, you know, how you got into researching, um, gender-based violence or you know sexual violence and just that specific area. Is that something you've always been interested in? Or um, you know, did you pick that up along the way?
2: Mm. Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um I have taught sexual offenses law for a number of years and across um a range of, of levels. So undergraduate and postgraduate, and I'm 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 close to and work with a number of colleagues who work in this area. So Vanessa Monroe who Um, I worked with uh, on the Feminist Judgments Project and also Sharon Cowan, uh, who also I I worked with on the Feminist Judgments Project, Uh, but also Eamon Keen, a new colleague of ours, they all um, work very much in this area. So I guess I've kind of had an interest in a number of years and I've um, picked this up more, I guess, along the way as well. The project I'm working on now, it's it's not exclusively about um, sexual offences. The project itself is really kind of looking at like the larger project is looking at legal responses to what I call um deceptively induced intimacy. So that could be romantic relationships, and marriage, um, as well as as well as sex. And I'm looking at this over the a long kind of historical period to think a bit about how these have changed over time. I mean, I should say I'm also very aware that these types of relationships don't exhaust the terrain of intimacy. There's lots of other kinds of intimate relationships that are important, but these are These are the ones I'm looking at in this project. And what I'm really trying to do is construct a sort of history of how we got to where we are, um, thinking about how some of the challenges we currently face um, in in trying to work out how to respond to this sort of conduct um, have been dealt with in the past and sort of how we, like I say, we've ended up where we are today. Um, And I I want to in this larger project kind of think about how and whether it's appropriate for the state to intervene and kind of sanction, um, by that I mean like punish or impose civil liability for this sort of conduct, um, what kind of legal response is most appropriate, uh, what sorts of deceptions should trigger a legal response and, and what kinds of conduct should be considered to be deceptive. Um, and I, I'm really lucky that I've received some funding from the Arts and hum, uh, Humanities Research Council to undertake this, this research. And I'm working with a, a postdoctoral fellow. Uh, her name's Kellyanne Cousins, who's a very talented historian and also with a really exciting and recently award winning uh, artist called Jamie Crew. So that's that's the kind of overview of where I am now. And and what I think we'll talk about today is a specific paper that really just focuses on this question of deceptive um, deceptive sex.
0: Yeah, and that sounds like a fascinating theme as well. You know, just that intersection of disciplines of you know history and art, and yeah, that just sounds amazing. But mm-hmm. yeah, let's coming. Let's go to what you've just been saying: deceptive sex, and uh, you know that specific area. So. Firstly, I want you to walk us through that. What is deceptive sex? You know, and Mm. you know, are there different kinds of deceptions, or yeah, what what do we know about Mm. that?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, on the wider project, there is there is actually a lot going on in it. I do have um, a website. I'll maybe maybe send you the link if you want to keep on top of what's happening. But your question about yeah, deceptive sex. So, um, what I would say is it's it's sex that happens when one person is operating under a false belief now um, often this false belief will be attributable to some other person's deception and deception can be of course you know a kind of lie uh, some other kind of misrepresentation I and some other people also use the term as a kind of shorthand for a slightly wider range of situations where one person is operating under a false belief. So for example, when uh, the other person has failed to disclose some kind of information, so it might not be that they have lied or that they've kind of actively represented as the courts like to describe it. It might be that they just haven't told the other person something which you know, the law or we think is important that and that they should have known. So I suppose technically, if if like me, you're interested in this wider range of situations, then it's maybe more accurate to talk about an information deficit rather than a, than a false belief necessarily. But that, that's that's the kind of basic gist of what, what I'm looking at. Um, the kinds of deceptions that might be told, you know, I think we're going to talk more about how the law has thought about deception and which of the kinds of deceptions that might be told matter. But the range of um, deceptions that exist, you know, there is work, empirical work, that that tells us something about the sorts of, Deceptions that occur. And I'd say um, they range from deceptions about what the activity actually is, right? So, its nature or its purpose, <clears throat> the fact that it is sexual activity. Um, mm. It also includes conditions uh, under which the sex will occur or is occurring. So, this could be um, like whether the contraception is used, for example, um, and, and certain facts about oneself as well so there's there's some great empirical work and there's also a fantastic book I should I should mention called Intimate Lies and the Law by by Jill Hasday Um, and she goes through in that work a lot of different examples she has found within the US Um, Mm. so just to give you a couple more examples to kind of flesh out I suppose those different categories and examples of the first kind of deception I mentioned this is the one where one party doesn't know that the act is um, sexual these these examples are often um, the ones that have come up through the courts anyway, quite old, right, and they also tend to occur in relationships where there's some power inequality, so a teacher or and a student or a doctor and a patient and The examples like I say which have come through the courts have been where um, a med, something's been presented as a medical procedure when it isn't um, The second kind, the conditions under which sex will occur I, I've mentioned already kind of contraceptive use. There might also be examples of like use of the withdrawal methods, which is kind of related to to, um, reproduction. And um, examples of the third kind, this is where you might not reveal or you might lie about something to do with who you are. These range from identity in the sense of kind of an imposter. So the the classical Mm -hmm. examples of these often are cases involving husbands, right? So impersonating a husband or it might be about your health, your fertility, your age, marital status, or your marital history, your desire for children, your sexual orientation, your gender, addictions, finances, I mean the list could go on and on, Uh, professional achievements, racial backgrounds, political affiliations, religion. There are, I should say, there are cases uh, involving sex work where a client has promised to pay and then not done so. I didn't, cover those in in my paper because I in my view they kind of require their own separate treatment you know they raise specific complex and contested questions about uh, the nature and the leg- legality of sex work that I think don't carry over into the context of other deceptive sex so it's um that's not something I really discuss in my paper but there are cases that deal with this I mean I think this kind of points to something I'm very keen to try and do in my work which is to pay attention to the context and the relationship between the parties the kind of power imbalances that exist professional social whatever they might be and and how these are important to how we respond through law and you know some some work on this topic does that really well other work doesn't so much engage with that so that's something I, I definitely try try to do within within my own work.
0: Wow that was so well explained I had a few I had a few things that I wanted to ask you about that so when you said false belief, that's essentially a lie, is it? Well,
2: it could be. So it could be that, you know, somebody a- actively lies about something. It might be that they they don't. Because most people think of a lie as a kind of false expression, like you say something that you know to be untrue. It might be that you don't explicitly say anything. It might be you somehow represent the situation. You infer something is the case. Or it might be, um, like I was saying earlier, there's this kind of wider category of cases that sometimes get talked about and I talk about them in my work where you don't tell someone something so it's not so much that you are asked or you volunteer information that's false it's perhaps that you don't tell the other person something which is typically important and so they might assume something about you and you don't put them right now that's a that kind of situation is more contentious and courts at least in um England and Wales have in some earlier cases tried to say that these sorts of situations where we're talking about non-disclosure rather than active misrepresentation mm. or active deception shouldn't necessarily be um be captured um, or like kind of potentially punished but but other people take a different view I mean actually I think this might uh, sort of lead into a kind of some of the more general debates that exist uh, around how to criminalize Mm -hmm. deceptive sex and whether we should. That's just one example. But you're you're absolutely right. So false belief Mm -hmm. can be something that arises in lots of different ways. And, And in theory, if we're concerned about not disclosing information, it's maybe a bit more accurate just to talk about an information deficit. They don't we don't know necessarily that they have this false belief. Um, hmm. but they haven't been told something that we for some reason think is significant and they, they should have known
0: Yeah there's this um there's this TV show that's just come out uh, unbelievable and I absolutely love it I don't know if you've seen it
2: but it's I have not uh, no I haven't seen that what's the what's it about
0: It's it's on I think it's on BBC iPlayer it's about um so it's by Michaela Coel and it's about essentially a survivor story a rape survivor story and
2: I have watched it Oh my gosh, sorry, I hadn't remembered the name of it properly. I have watched this, yes. Yes. the one and... that, that, that deals with, sorry, I'm interrupting you. Please go ahead, Asmita.
0: No, no, please uh, uh, feel free to interrupt me. It's great. Uh, but I was going to say, the you know, the plot line with uh, her best friend, Terry, and how yes. when they're in, is it in Italy, and she has a threesome with those, with those two guys, and she later yes. finds out that it was planned, like she thought they were strangers and they met in a bar, and it was very, you know, yes. sort of spontaneous but he later finds out it's planned so I'm just thinking is that sort of kind of the false belief premise that we've just been talking about
2: yeah yeah exactly right so that's a good example um I mean not all situations I suppose one reason why people want there's many reasons but one reason why people might want to distinguish between sort of misrepresentation or lies and non-disclosure is that we we can't necessarily assume there's always going to be a sort of malicious kind of motivation for people not telling other people certain facts about themselves and mm. and um I do sort of think about that a bit in my work but that is yeah a good example in fact that series has another couple of examples which are are relevant to this topic I don't know if you've seen I mean there's probably spoilers here for any of your uh, yeah. listeners but there's the there's the encounter between the main character and um sorry I'm really terrible with names I've forgotten all the characters names but the main character and one of her sexual partners and he he um
1: takes off the condom condom.
2: yeah there's the condom removal example and also the one where her her close friend Kwame doesn't tell a woman who he has sex with that he is um well I mean she said well this is I'm not 100% sure he's supposed to be portrayed as gay as much as bi Mm. but certainly he he doesn't exclusively have sex with with women and um you know she feels Mm very upset by that in, in, in my paper I mean I we obviously we can sort of talk more about the details of the paper but in, yeah. in my paper I try and suggest that not every one of those three examples probably should be punished as a sex mm. offense but I but I think this is exactly the kind of situation I and mean, it that that series is a good example of how this is I think kind of becoming more of a of a of a cultural phenomenon it's something that people are learning more about and kind of having conversations about so I I definitely think it's something that is attracting more attention and you know Mm. and I I think for good reason it's a tricky tricky area it's a difficult subject but it's one that does it does matter and it's kind of unavoidable to to kind of deal with it because it is something that is you know coming up in real life and also in as you say in kind of tv series and, and yeah. beyond
0: and just very well done like all of those
2: plot lines in that show I felt I think it's is it called I may destroy you sorry I don't mean to correct you but oh, in case anybody sorry. wants to follow up no 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 it's fine it's just in case anybody uh, who's listening wants to watch I think it's called I may destroy you I'm confusing it another show called unbelievable yeah uh, yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's easily done i'm like i said i'm terrible with names so but that's yes it's a really i think it's a great and very nuanced um tv series
0: yes yeah absolutely recommend it and you know like in, in that uh plot line, uh you we find out the in in the according to uk law removing a condom without the consent of your sexual partner is is categorized as rape right but um wanted to you know sort of segue into that sort of uh sphere of these debates around criminalizing mm. deceptive sex so if I, mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could walk us through those
2: and obviously please correct me if i just well i think um we you know there's an there's a lot of different um approaches to the question of whether this is a crime or not and and i and how courts treat this really does vary um spoiler to the viewers again there is you very Sort of generous to send me questions in advance So I think we will cover that so I might just hold off and um, answer that question in a moment but for, for sure it's potentially an offence in, in, in England and Wales and possibly in Scotland um, but the, the more general debates because I think that's useful to know a bit about maybe before we get into the details of how courts have kind of responded um, I would say there's kind of two main questions in these debates so the first would be assuming there is a need for some kind of legal response to this sort of conduct, um, what should it, or what should they be, right? And the second would be what sorts of conduct should trigger these, these responses. So uh, on the first point, when it comes to just the criminalization question, there are some people who think that this sort of conduct, if it's going to be a crime, it should really be considered fraud. So fraud, um, can be defined in a, in a few different sorts of ways and in different um, jurisdictions. But the basic idea is that you, know, you, through your misrepresentation, induce somebody to do something they wouldn't otherwise have done. Now, the key thing is that for, most, for many jurisdictions, usually fraud involves some kind of economic loss or gain, or at least the risk of that. In Scotland, in fact, fraud is, a bit, it is much wider than this. Any sort of practical result that's obtained through deception can constitute fraud. But um, there are people who say, look, we need to maybe think about expanding fraud such that it doesn't only uh, encompass economic losses or gains. And these sorts of outcomes, these sorts of deceptively induced outcomes should really be considered fraud because what matters is, is, is the deception. And in fact, in um, some older cases, in Scotland anyway, this is sort of how this was treated, it was a sort of um, fraud-like offence anyway, and this one 2013 case in Scotland, which was prosecuted under um, the common law, so not under the statute that we have, um, which is the mm. Sexual Offences Scotland Act 2009, it was, it was prosecuted uh, as obtaining sexual intimacy by fraud. Now, there were, up until relatively recently, Uh, offences a bit like that, which existed in Britain. One of them, which applied in England and Wales, was in the Sexual Offences Act 1956, which said it was a crime to procure, was the word that was used, a woman, by false pretenses or false representations to have sexual intercourse. Uh, And in Scotland, there was a similar-ish offence, although slightly different. Now, both of these acts, which are obviously, first of all, gendered, so it's, you know, it's a woman, who's been um, procured to have sex, but they were also both, right? So they were repealed and they were not replaced with anything similar. Some people think that was a mistake, but the result is that now where there is criminalization of deceptive sex, generally speaking, in Britain, it's largely treated as rape or some other non-consensual sexual activity. Um, I do think actually that the procuring offense or something like that exists in other common law jurisdiction so hong kong for example i read a great article by someone called jianlin chen um, about mm. criminalizing sex under religious inverted commas false pretenses and i and that piece mentions a similar kind of legislation but yeah so in, in britain it's mainly treated as um, rape or some non-consensual sexual activity and that's where most of the debate has really been um focused uh, mm. so what are the debates here um i think it's worth saying that you know, mainly the focus is on the question of what kinds of deceptions will vitiate, invalidate consent to sex, or otherwise valid consent. When will that be treated as not meaningful and real consent? Um, having said that, though, you know this isn't—I don't think—a conversation that's confined to jurisdictions where consent is the main uh, concept that's used mm-hmm. to define sexual offences, because. You might, even if you don't use consent within your jurisdiction, say that deceptive sex is one way of failing to engage in adequately respectful sex and therefore should be should be a crime and possibly a sex crime on that basis. Um. So the other the other big question. um, Is is this one of ha- what kinds of deceptive sex should trigger this this criminal response? So put differently, yeah. what deceptions should be punishable? and I think what's key here is that any jurisdiction that treats this as a crime tends to do so from the perspective that sexual autonomy is a very important value to protect and that deceiving somebody into having sex in some sense undermines that sexual autonomy. Now, there's been lots and lots written about sexual autonomy by lots of different people, but one view is that it means that you should be able to, you have the right to choose freely Whether to have sex, you know, where, with whom, and under what kinds of conditions. Um, Mm. Now, if you on one reading, that could mean basically anything that might be important to you should be potentially possible. Uh, Mm. Deceptions about that thing could be a basis on which someone's punished. Um, Now, almost no one says that literally everything is important in that way. There's one academic um, whose name is Jed Rubinfeld. Who has who has used this possibility though to argue that deceptive sex should never be a sex offence? Right, his view is uh, kind of paraphrasing, largely obviously. N- there's no way of limiting which deceptions undermine sexual autonomy, so we just shouldn't we shouldn't criminalise them. It's not a question. Rape is not about sexual autonomy. It's about it's about force. So, I mean, I think. That view is is quite unpopular, I think it's fair to say, um, although some people do subscribe to it. But um, there are, you know, there are other ways, there are existing ways of trying to decide which deceptions matter. One big kind of longstanding one is that deceptions which relate to the nature or the purpose of the act should be punished. So I've mentioned those, those already, the examples, including for like medical, there's a medical procedure when it isn't. But the problem the problem with that approach, using that test, if you like, to, to draw the line, is that if sexual autonomy is what we value, it's quite hard to understand why those are the only kinds of deceptions that should matter, right? Why why is that the right place to draw the line? Another approach that's been suggested by some people would be um, the line should be drawn if there is physical harm or physical harm is risk. But again, if sexual autonomy, the idea of choosing freely, is what we think sexual offenses are all about. It's not super clear why that's where the line should be drawn either. uh, should Mm -hmm. be drawn either. Some other people uh, like Jonathan Herring, uh, amongst others have made suggestions along the lines that any any deception or, or failure to disclose that informs the specific individual's decision to have sex should be punished as a sex offense if the other person knew or should have known that this fact would be important, right? It would be essential to the person's decision to have sex. Now, that that I think is attractive if you think that sexual autonomy is what um, sexual offences are about. But the the difficulty I think, as I see it, that arises with with using that test is that it does leave quite a lot of room for uncertainty in the law, unless there is a totally clear cut, unequivocal proof that that deception really, really mattered to. Uh, the the complainer uh, then then juries and judges will be left to decide whether they think this is the kind of deception that really would be important um and I think there's probably not that many cases where it is completely unequivocal so and, and I, more importantly I think you know we we probably have reason to care about a wider range of cases so we as 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 Jonathan Herring's point about you know we should Um, think about situations where the other party should have known it would be important to suggest it's not just about whether the other party, the one who's not given this information or who's been deceptive knew for sure, it's about well, what sorts of things do we think we ought to be paying attention to you know, it's um, a question of trying to isolate what sorts of factors would be reasonable to require individuals to be transparent about i think that's really at the root of what um is going on in in a lot of these debates and i think unfortunately the the tests that so far have been put forward don't do a a perfect job now no no tests will be perfect but i think there are problems with each of them and which that's one of the reasons why i've tried to put forward an an alternative
0: i was quite uh uh, interested in what you said about how uh how do you even define uh what deception matters to Mm. To a survivor i I don't know you know mm-hmm. uh, like how do you even prove that
2: mm-hmm. how do you
0: how do you measure that, and exactly what you said if we don't we can't really leave that up to juries and judges to decide which deceptions matter, so that was very
2: interesting, but yeah, please mm-hmm. do come back to how courts treat deceptive sex, sure, um I should say that conversation about you know how it might be up to juries and judges um was that thought was really something that i have come to through conversations with lots of other people, specifically uh, a really fantastic researcher called Rachel Clement Tolly. She's worked mm-hmm. on this area load, she's done a whole PhD thesis on this, which I mean I haven't read all of it, I've read bits and it's really, it's really great. Um, so yeah, this question of courts, right? So it it obviously varies by jurisdiction and and across time. I mean, like I was saying, one of the things I've been looking at, and I can, will continue to look at is how this has shifted. Um, and how it shifted also not just within the criminal law sphere, but also from civil, so um, non-criminal wrongs, to mm. criminal wrongs. So it's uh, there's some fascinating histories of uh, what what's called seduction. This is a kind of civil law action. Um, some places it was criminal in the past, but it was mainly civil in um, in Scotland and also in England and Wales so it's a very different action in Scotland it's, it's actually fascinating because unlike in England um, and in America in Scotland it's an action that was always available to women so in England it was seen as something which the pet, the father of a woman or or her um, master this is the time period we're talking about would bring mm-hmm. on the basis of loss of service but you know this is the seduction which was a civil action was uh, it's, a, it's also a fascinating area because it's a really shifting wrong it doesn't have very clear-cut boundaries and they change over time but at, at its core it was this idea that it was sex induced by a promise to marry that was not fulfilled lots and lots could be said about that and people have written about this and i'm currently writing something about it i should say also Arishi garg has written a fantastic yeah. um prize-winning piece about this how, how a similar kind of practice is currently being punished in rape uh, sorry as rape in india But in these, in the jurisdictions I'm more familiar with, with uh, England and Wales and Scotland, the two kind of longest-standing deceptions that have been punished as rape are those, like I've mentioned already a couple of times, that go to the the nature or the purpose of the act and the impersonation of of a husband. Um, The range of impersonations that have counted that are punishable has expanded over time to include partners and now to include people who are known personally to the the complainant. Um, Mm -hmm. Those are the two deceptions that are included within the legislation which uh, governs this area of law. So in England and Wales the Sexual Offences Act 2003 and in Scotland the Sexual Offences Scotland Act 2009. So under the 2003 Act when either of those deceptions occur so The nature and purpose of the act or um, impersonating someone known personally, it's what's called conclusively presumed that the complainant did not consent to the sex and that the defendant did not believe that the complainant consented. Uh, It's a bit different under the 2009 act um, in that when either of those deceptions occur, the act says there's no consent to the sexual activity but it seems from reading the statute anyway, that the prosecution still has to prove that the accused person did not reasonably believe that the complainer was consenting. Mm. But these are not the only um, deceptions which have been treated as or been said to be potentially punishable in in Britain. Um, the list has grown and the way it's grown is through judges deciding that certain deceptions um, Will mean that there's been no consent, which is, and consent is defined by the 2003 Act I mentioned as agreeing by choice with the freedom and capacity to make that choice. So, um, for example, courts have suggested that deception, but but not um, non-disclosure. Although that distinction, mm-hmm. in a more in a very recent case called Lawrence, which I'll mention in a moment, was brought into question the sort of one of the things the court said was you know perhaps this distinction doesn't matter all that much other people have made that point already but in that in in judicial decisions there's been a suggestion that deceptions about one's HIV status could vitiate consent deceptions about the use of a condom uh, the withdrawal method so what have been termed gender deceptions have also been held to vitiate consent but in contrast lying about having had a vasectomy um was recently held not to vitiate consent even when the sexual consent was explicitly based on the complainant's understanding that she was not at risk of becoming pregnant so this is a very controversial decision and also um that's the lawrence decision i mentioned there's also been a decision that an undercover police officer who had s- sexual relationships with citizens to whom he had not disclosed his identity, uh, okay. should not be prosecuted, right, for, for rape. And and this was, you could in some way see that, you know, as an, an impersonation case, but it, it doesn't, it's obviously not something known personally to the complainant, but it's, the argument was that his uh, presenting himself as having the same core political beliefs, sort of environmentalist beliefs, were central to the decision of um, the complainants uh, the the victim survivors to have set and enter into a relationship with him but I think what's really stands out for me in looking at some of these cases is that there's a real struggle to try and contain the range of this offence the the kind of scope of of punishment and I can see why that is happening but I think some of the decisions have been sort of argue and um, reasoned on the basis of this old idea of the nature and purpose of the act so even though the prosecutions haven't been brought under the section of the legislation which criminalizes this sort of deception it's sort of that test has found its way into um the more recent decisions which have expanded the range of or the possible range of criminalization they've Uh, and sometimes in a way that just doesn't feel very satisfactory. So the vasectomy case I mentioned is a quite good example here, I think, because the court said, um, you know, this deception doesn't go to the nature and purpose of the act, but just to its consequences. Now, one of the reasons I think that the nature and purpose of the test act is quite difficult is that, you know, what counts as the act? This is a philosophical question that people have struggled with for a very long time. And so it's not surprising to me that, you can get lots of different kinds of answers depending on how you want to kind of draw the boundary around what constitutes the act so so yeah that's kind of a sort of quick whistle stop i suppose of how um Mm. courts have approached this in 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 britain anyway and i don't think it's necessarily i mean people have called for this to be something that the law commission look at again because it. decisions are really some of the decisions are hard to reconcile with with one another and I think there's a kind of degree of uncertainty that's that's not desirable
0: right right that was that was really um that was really interesting and just I should have warned you before that I'm not very well versed in I have no background in the law so uh you know my perspective is a complete rank outsider but I mean just some of that is so perplexing I mean especially that vasectomy case like uh mm-hmm. it just does not make any sense to <laughs> me at least but i mean i'm sure I, I guess like that's what we're talking about those sort of inconsistencies and those debates mm-hmm. uh and i'm sorry that you might be hearing some background disturbances uh it's it's festival time in india so there's kids oh, on wow. the street oh,
2: and my gosh. room faces the
0: street and this is a great place to come to you know, your framework and you've come up with a framework in this paper that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And I'll include a link to this paper in the episode description so that people can go and read it, which I highly recommend. But, you know, you've given us a fantastic background on the debates around criminalization and, you know, how on, you know, how code street deceptive sex. But mm-hmm. you've also come up with this framework. And I wanted to ask you, what do you recommend? Do you recommend that every deception should be treated as punishable?
2: Yeah, that's, I mean, so thank you very much, Asmita, about your, uh, for your kind words about the piece. Um, I think it should be coming out fairly soon. So hopefully it will be no problem to give you a link to it. Um, it's it's a piece that's coming out in legal studies. And as you say, I've tried to put forward a different kind of framework for thinking about the questions we've been discussing. Um And it's really an attempt to try to situate the idea of sexual autonomy in a fuller account of why sex matters to us that could try and help us identify which kinds of interferences with sexual autonomy are especially bad. And this fuller account of why sex matters to us is based on my argument that sex and intimate relationships both have a role to play in the way we construct our identities Um, I'll say a bit more about what I mean by that in a minute, but, but what, what the core argument means is that sometimes, at least if you uh, are with me on what I'm arguing, sometimes when a person engages in deceptive sex, they're failing to respect the way we construct our identities. And so what they, can, what they do can be understood as an example of what uh, the philosopher Charles Taylor has called identity non-recognition, and, and that's you know explained a bit more in the paper itself. Um, but I'll try just for listeners' uh, benefit to explain a little bit more about what I mean by identity and, and why its construction is important to us and how mm. deceptive sex might be relevant to that. So in my work with the theories of identity I rely on, see identity, which we can also call our sense of self, uh, in narrative terms. So they say that our sense of self, our sense of who we are, is built up. By a process of integrating our experiences, our social and institutional roles, and our values into a meaningful sort of autobiography. And this autobiography is essentially what gives our life meaning. So it's very important to us. Now, not all of our experiences or roles or values are going to matter equally here. Um, Not all of them are going to be significant to this life narrative. But when someone interferes with those of them, which are significant, or interferes with our ability to make decisions in accordance with them, this can lead to harmful effects, reduced um, self-worth, self-esteem, and other kinds of harmful um, consequences. But also what they do signals a lack of respect for the life narrative of the person who um, is likely to have been harmed in this way. So in my paper, what I do is I argue that some, but not all, examples of deceptive sex can be understood as interferences of this kind so you you might be wondering at this point um, how can you possibly pick out which deceptions are bad in this way using this this idea Um, and I argue we can do this in two ways right so the first way reflects the fact that these life narratives that I've mentioned are on the one hand very personal so it's to some extent up to each of us to decide what we value and the roles we adopt, and we'll integrate into our sense of self. So what that means is, uh, in relation to deceptive sex, is where someone, where someone explicitly tells another person in advance that something is absolutely central to their decision to have sex. Mm. You know, their decision to have sex depends on it. Then my view is that any deception that relates to that amounts to this this phenomenon I mentioned: identity non-recognition. So on my view. Um, at least in principle, any deception, if it's been explicitly referred to as something that would be absolutely central, should should be potentially punishable. Now, like I said earlier, this might not exhaust all the situations we have reason to care about. So um, mm. it seems reasonable to suggest, suggest that there might be certain issues that are very likely to be significant. So um, not so much that there's been advanced notice, there's been no kind of, explicit conditional consent but it would be fair to say that it's wrong in these situations to deceive someone about that issue so if we can predictably guess that it's going to be something that matters then we should possibly you know care about it um, and here's where mm. here's what I think is the second way that my, my framework can be helpful so even though identity is on the one hand very personal on the other hand it's shaped by culture and what this means is that in any given time or place, certain roles and values are likely to be significant in identity constructing terms. And if we can somehow find this out through empirical research, for example, this can try and help us work out which issues it would be reasonable to expect a sexual partner to be, to be open about. And that's what I try and do in the paper. I go through a list of possible deceptions um, that I mentioned uh, earlier on in our conversation, the kind of things people tend to be deceptive about when I try and use empirical research and where that's not available my to be honest my own intuitions I, I say this quite frankly in the paper to try and work out which of these will generally be significant in this mm-hmm. identity forming sense and I one other thing I do which you know it takes quite a lot to explain it so obviously if people can read it if they're interested but I try and also engage with the way that under sort of modern conditions sex and intimate relationships are you know they overlap but they are also separately important to us so i try and suggest Mm. that some of the deceptions even though they might be important to the deceived person's identity narrative they may be better thought of as being about relationships induced relationships rather than sex and i and i think that gives us good reason to also think about you know how the law responds to those sorts of situations which is what my larger project is um is is really geared towards um, And, you know, the result then of my analysis, as people can see if they read it, um, is, you know, more more deceptions probably than are currently definitely punishable in Britain would be. So that would include certain kinds of impersonations. It would include gender with some important caveats about trans people. Sexually communicable and chronic diseases, anything that relates to reproduction. And this is because mm. these these deceptions are important, in my view, because of the way that they relate to sexual the sexual orientation of the person who's mm. um, not been given the relevant information. H- how chronic illness and parenthood and the termination of pregnancy. These are all things that are known to be very g- generally very important to people's um, sense of self and their life narrative so these are ones that you know i go through in more detail in the paper at like paper like how i think that this framework i set out can better explain why these matter um beyond the kind of more obvious perhaps sort of physical consequences or nature and the purpose of the act type test so so i think mm-hmm. my, my hope is anyway that you know this is not this is a conversation i don't see this as being a final say it's something i think is worth discussing though This question of whether this line drawing attempt I undertake is defensible and perhaps preferable to some of the alternatives that exist. But I think, you know, a full conversation about the criminalization of this conduct has to also build in, of course, really important concerns like um, considerations of privacy, of um, public health goals when it comes to uh, the criminalization of non-disclosure of certain kinds of diseases. There's so lots of research on this, and you know, I do refer to that in my paper. But what I've tried to do is just engage with the prior question, what I see as the prior question of, you know, what sorts of things do we have good reason to even think about criminalizing and why? Right? A more satisfying substantive basis on which to try and decide um, these questions. That's what I try and do anyway.
0: Wow, that's that's wonderful. Um but but I guess we've been talking a lot about you know uh, Criminalization and how courts treat this. Mm. I I suppose the context that we're in, the broader social context, is is this conversation around how um, criminal justice systems and police and all of these institutions, you know, the the institutional racism and the, Mm -hmm. you know, institutional bigotry that these institutions all um, are filled with. How do we, how do we, look at justice
2: mm.
0: you know while also thinking of who's being harmed in that pursuit yeah. and you know the different sort of routes that we can potentially look at I'm mm-hmm. sorry that was very badly no, articulated I don't. no no what I was trying to get at is you know are there any non-criminal routes of dealing with deceptive sex you know uh, I suppose because there's just something that that you that you look at in your article but also there's so much conversation around this that it's 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 it doesn't seem holistic to talk about Mm. uh policing and criminal criminalization without talking about without thinking about the harms attached to that
2: and what can those roots look like totally i think that's a really excellent point and i'm i'm mindful of the growing body of work and scholarship by anti-carceral feminists who advocate for alternative kind of restorative or transformative justice responses to sexual violence and and gender-based violence, and you know this is not something I can claim to be an expert on. I'm trying to educate myself more on this. I've been reading work, for example, by Mimi uh, E. Kim, who who I think for for someone who's trying to get um, a way into this stuff mm. sets out really clearly. You know how in the 1970s movements to address gendered violence became closely associated with kind of law and order movements. Um, you know my, my intervention I guess I, I just sort of start by saying my intervention this piece I wrote was pitched to come in to the conversation as it's currently unfolding where of course mm. there is already criminalization happening so I'm kind of coming from it that angle partly because it's already the way the discussion is going but I absolutely think it's important to think about these questions and I think you know the um the alternative responses that people like anti-carceral feminists advocate for, they, they place a lot more emphasis on kind of community resolution and support for different kinds of harmful conduct. So you, I guess you might think in terms of sort of if you think if you use the terminology of sort of who owns the wrong, you might say criminal wrongs are sort of seen to belong to the state. And that raises mm-hmm. its own issues for especially for sex, sexual offence prosecution civil wrongs belong to the victim and here maybe if we use that terminology it could be that these are belong to the community in an important sense and I think you know this is something I I am very much trying to learn more about I'm curious to think about how this could potentially translate to context beyond beyond the marginalized communities where these movements grew up because you know so if the if the if the relevant sort of inverted commas perpetrator or victim survivor doesn't belong to that marginalized group how does that how could these kinds of ideas play out and what against our current institutional practices and, and backdrop how is it possible to shift responses to sexual and other gendered violence to these alternative methods without creating at least the impression that this sort of conduct is somehow less serious I think that's a risk that uh, uh, certainly other people I'm sure have written about, and that's something I need to read up on more. Um, but yeah, there's civil responses, criminal responses, um, other responses. In my larger projects I've been mentioning, I'm interested in trying to uncover exactly what kinds of c- civil and criminal um, actions have been used, what they have been targeted, targeting, and what they've offered to those who have been subject to this kind of conduct. I'm, I guess I'm trying to see as far as possible, given the limits of sources, especially historical sources, mm. What people seem to have wanted or needed, and I think I guess I, I like to flatter myself into thinking this is kind of a historically informed exercise of mapping out what uh, Claire McGlinn and Nicole Westmoreland have called kaleidoscopic justice. They have this great article that um, it deals it kind of has it's an empirical study that talks to people women who have suffered um, sexual violence and asks them you know what would justice look like to them and it's clear that there's a range of different things, including consequences for the person who's harmed them, um, recognition and acknowledgement, dignity, voice, prevention, Mm. connectedness. I think clearly there's huge differences across different historical contexts. And in terms of the conducts, my study looks at it's not, I don't think, the same necessarily as that which was experienced by the victim survivors who were consulted for the study. But I, I want to chart this because I think In some ways, looking at this in a long term way shows that these questions and the desire to have a legal response to this sort of conduct is not 100 percent new. It's not totally novel. But the way this desire plays out and the areas of law that are expected to do the work has changed. And I think, you know, the disappearance of certain non-punitive or, you know, at least civil law responses can perhaps help us understand also and critique the shift towards more punitive responses. Like is the reason we have more activity for want of a better word in the criminal law sphere partly because you know we've certain um non-criminal actions have just disappeared. And you know, are we now just seeing a transition into a different into a different area? So yeah, I think that's a Mm. hugely important question and one I am trying to do work on. um, And I Mm. have to have to do more work on that for sure.
0: All of us, I think, all of us do. But you know mm-hmm. what you're what you're talking about already, and the questions that you're asking, and the points that you're raising—they're all so so important. And yeah, I I guess like it, what you said about you know that article by Nicole Westmarlin and Claire McGlynn with mm-hmm. Khalid big justice—that makes me think that uh, maybe you know it could be about account accountability mm-hmm. and not necessarily punishment. Obviously, you know, I'm not I'm not trying to force my own perspective onto anyone especially not survivors and what justice can we look like but I guess when we're talking more broadly that's something that comes to mind that uh, Mm -hmm. what are the forms of justice and accountability for perpetrators are there yeah you know now I have a really broad question for you and this is a very broad general sweeping question which is <laughs> what recommendations do you have for how we can prevent uh deceptive sex in general I mean like h- how we can just I, I don't know work towards preventing this from happening in the first place
2: Sure. well I mean it is a, it's a, a broad question it's it's also a difficult. I mean it's a difficult question I think I suppose this is where we need to ask questions about who's responsibility is it that parties uh, that people have the sort of information we take to be important um and that of itself of course raises the question of again of which kinds of information are do we see as important you know one one p- person typically has access to this information and the other party doesn't and um, the way i've been talking probably makes clear that to some extent i'm in favour of laying the weight of responsibility on the party who has the information. So, um, you know, one sort of unsatisfying response would be aim where possible, subject to a fulsome consideration of context to be open with people, right? Your sexual partners. But of course, there's at least two, at least two people involved in sexual activity and we we might think the other person has some responsibility to try and find out more about their sexual partners and certainly this view this kind of idea has been in prevailed in the past right the idea that if you don't do enough checking about your partner whether that's your sexual partner your marriage partner someone you get into a relationship with it's kind of your fault if you are deceived or if you don't have the relevant information now and the issue with with that is if we assume if we assume it's wrong to deceive or fail to disclose certain kinds of information, this can seem quite sort of victim blamey for want of a better word uh, expression. Mm. And you know, there's also obviously limits to how much we can find out about one another, especially in a digital dating age. You know, I was, saw something recently about the pandemic and romance fraud. So if you this this um, a term is used to describe. Uh, conduct where someone tricks someone else into thinking that they're in love with them or they're in a relationship and then they convince them to give them some material benefit usually money or something like that so it's I guess a more traditional kind of fraud in the sense they get an economic usually kind of gain but what the in this conversation I saw unfolding about the pandemic and how this kind of conduct has uh has increased I saw you know there's this Organization called the Online Dating Association, and they were, you know, kind of regulatory bodies, I suppose. I'm not sure if that's the right way to describe them. People who maybe could be, when it comes to online fora, they could be perhaps doing, could help with this situation. But, you know, in general, my hope is just, but talking about this issue and thinking about what might be wrong with deceptive sex, we can try and sort of nuance and clarify the expectations we have of one another. I mean, I want to encourage people to think critically about the meaning and potential consequences of this sort of conduct um, mm. and, and so I think and also pragmatically sort of I think it's important we get clearer about what the law's demands actually are like I was saying it's not necessary that clear right now uh, so being clear about what the law actually demands of us and thinking carefully about the justifiability of that too like is it not just clear but is it is it fair
1: mm. Mm.
0: Yeah, really, really well said. And I guess also thinking about how this ties in with consent, and thinking about uh, I don't know affirmative consent, uh, Mm -hmm. and I suppose that's an interesting area to explore. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering when you do all of this research, and you're also uh, through your other work, also looking at you know judgments and uh, legal statutes and all of that, and you're looking at you know, all of these cases where, you know, all these stories, all of these cases, and how, you know, there's this miscarriage of justice. And if not necessarily justice, there's this, you know, there's this element of deception and then there's this element of being wronged. And that makes me think of how you balance your work with your emotional well being. And, you know, uh, if any of this work is emotionally draining and, how you balance your mental health with
2: your work and the kind of change that you're trying to bring about. Oh, thanks, Sassamita. I mean, I think, if I'm honest, this um, question would, I think if I were doing empirical work with, so obviously historical work is in some sense, is in an important sense empirical work, Mm -hmm. but if I were working directly with people who had been involved in this, I am certain I would have a better answer to this because I think it would be much, much harder. I I have been to talks with, you know, survivor activists, and even in that context of being an audience member, it's extremely, it's extremely difficult to listen. Um, It's important to listen, of course, but it's very difficult. But I think, for me, um, I try not to be too detached about it, because I think that in itself is not desirable. But at the same time, The work I do is primarily desk-based and so I think that does inevitably bring a degree of distance and makes it it much less of an emotionally difficult experience than people who do work directly with really important work directly with victim survivors so I think um, I think other people who are on this podcast um, can maybe give insights into that a bit better than I than I maybe could. Yeah
0: but but I mean still like it's really it's really admirable that you're Looking at uh, all of these areas that traditionally have not been taken seriously, and you know, there's this element of oh, but you know, there are bigger things to think about, and that sort of frame of thinking where different forms of violence are ranked, you know, in terms of seriousness, and you know, I I imagine that's frustrating to look at as well. So you know, we're we're all really lucky that you're persisting with it and you're you're looking at you're coming up with different ways in which we can improve on this improve on the gaps within uh, the justice system at the moment but you know last thing I want to ask you is and I know that we're over time so I'm really sorry about that but uh, last thing I want to ask you is what is one lesson that you want to take uh, that you want listeners to take away from what we've spoken about today and you know anything else that you feel is key for all of us
2: thanks Asmita I, I think what you said in your last comments really um echoes what i want to say as in answer to your last question and, you know the one thing i guess i would like listeners to try and think about is or to take away from our conversation is that you know these questions about deceptive sex and how the law should respond to it don't have they don't have obvious answers answering them is certainly not a question of applying so-called common sense which is something that gets said about this topic these are deeply social and political questions um they require us to think carefully about why we value sex and in in my view also intimacy more generally And, and as you said a few times in our conversation who it is that gets penalized when this kind of conduct is a criminal offense so i think that's it this is tricky and i think people hopefully will engage with these questions and I think having a conversation about them is extremely important
0: wow that was that was a very very important note to end on thank you so much for that and thank you for your time today and for explaining all of these really convoluted concepts so well I mean it was just I feel like I've learned so much and now I have a bit of an understanding um, of you know what would what you're what you're looking at and these really important uh, practical issues so thank you so much for talking to me and thank you for your really really powerful work we're so lucky that you're doing this for us
2: well thank you for having me asmita and um it was a real pleasure to talk with you thank you
1: thank you